Welcome to the Leaders Table podcast, where policy leaders share the inside stories of their impact on the world, and we capture the secrets behind their success to help you increase yours. Education, diversity, and equity, core American issues. What are the things that I should be pushing for to inspire a movement? Let's, let's dig into that. Welcome. Here on the Leaders Table podcast, it's our job to dissect leaders in policy and education, to dig into the practices, tools, tips, and actionable strategies of their success to empower you. This episode, we're joined by a powerhouse of an advocate. As executive director of RGV Focus, Lucelma Canales knows her data inside out and upside down, can distill complicated policy issues for any audience, and brings together partners like it's easy as pie. But what really sets her apart as a leader isn't just that. It's that her community leads her. Listen for practices to put community at the center of your work and advice for holding it all together. As always, we're eager to hear who you'd like us to invite to the leader's table and what you'd like us to ask them. Email your ideas for future guests and fun interview questions to leaderstable at educationalequity.org. And now, here's Lucelma Canales at the leader's table. Lucelma Canales, thank you so much for joining the Leaders Table. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Jason. So the Rio Grande Valley Focus, Valley Focus is a collective impact initiative in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas that partners to improve student lives from cradle to grave. Um, I understand from the website that, um, that RGV Focus works to strengthen each step of the educational pipeline and align community resources to provide support supports to learners to succeed throughout high school and into post-secondary in order to pursue a meaningful career. Um, Lucelma, thank you for joining us. Uh, um, we look forward to learning about your path to becoming executive director, your thoughts on collective leadership, um, and other insights that you can share with uh, with our listeners. Sure. Thank you, Jason. Um, collective impact is a little different to traditional collaboration in that in traditional collaboration, we are really looking for the best interests of our own organization. So we have an issue that we want to solve that is critical to moving our own goals and agenda forward. In through collective impact, we have five five components that are really, really critical and are very different to traditional collaboration and partnerships. One is that a cross-sector community comes together and develops a common agenda. That common agenda is to solve a large social issue. Uh, for us it happens to be that we want to get all kids to college uh, in and through college to a meaningful career, uh, which, mean, which means that we have to look at the whole pipeline, the K through 12 and the post-secondary and the wraparound services that can be provided by our community. The second is that 
everyone agrees to hold ourselves accountable to public uh, to public accountability by by adopting very public measures. So we have nine in the in the Rio Grande Valley Focus Initiative that we're focused on moving the needle on. The third is that we all agree to develop a common narrative. So we must have a common communication by which we do our work. Um, the fourth is perhaps the most different and important one, which is that we all agree to to implement mutually reinforcing activities, which means that not that we're all doing the same thing, but that we all understand our role in processes and systems to get kids in and through college. The fifth is a unique and, and very different one, which is that communities choosing to use collective impact select a backbone organization. That's what RGB Focus is and what I'm the executive director for, the mm. backbone. As the backbone, we are neutral conveners that mobilize folks around issues through action networks and through a leadership table and a data support council to understand the issues, diagnose what, what they are, develop regional and or targeted strategy, measure them, implement, and then, you know, determine whether they're moving the needle on our outcomes or not. And so that's unique to collective impact that is a little different to traditional collaboration and partnership. So just to make sure that, that this is clear for, for those that are new to these concepts. So when we think about leadership and collective impact and the work that you're doing versus traditional partnerships and collaboration, what I'm hearing is a, a more ground-up approach, kind of public accountability for, for, um, for big goals, and a, a different sort of collaboration toward a broader vision. What are the other things that go into making making this form of advocacy or change-making successful? So I'll start with how we end every meeting, Jason. So we end every meeting with a quote uh, that says, progress moves at the speed of trust. So trust among leaders, you know, many times, <laughs> you know, it takes time, right? And so we're very lucky in, in the Rio Grande Valley that our culture, just our Latino, Hispanic, Texas border culture is one of great trust. We will trust uh, until you break that trust, right? And so it's really important for us that folks understand that we have their best interests in mind. And so as we begin our meetings, we have a leadership table um, that includes 11 of our 39 superintendents, the four college and university presidents, or a very high-level designee. Uh, we have... Uh, a handful of community-based organizations, including two organizations that work very deeply in our in our uh, underrepresented communities that are colonias, right? We're very, very that are very much under-resourced communities, predominantly first-generation uh, folks to the Rio Grande Valley and to the U.S. Um, and also the regional service center and some some other folks. And so that leadership table sets the vision and, and decides what the priorities are for the work. Where the work really gets done is in what we call our action network groups. And we, ha we have mobilized four of our six strategic priorities in those groups. You know, the, the, the difference in leadership in this is that there has to be trust all throughout. So the leadership team identifies individuals that have the power, authority, and autonomy to make commitments 
of resources and or implementing and developing strategies on behalf of their institution. That's a non-negotiable for us. If folks are going to come to meetings, they have full authority and autonomy to take a deep dive into the issues that we're trying to look into, and more importantly, to commit themselves and or their colleagues and their institution um, to develop strategies and then implement them and evaluate their success. And so, you know, there's a real difference in this because all throughout the all throughout, you know, the, the process, it is grounded, right? So our leaders have to trust that their staff, employees, uh, that their leaders are have the best interests of their organizations, but also the best interests of the community and region at heart. Now let me let me ask you though how do you how how do how do you as an as a leader of of leaders or a coordinator or yeah. collaborator of leaders drive that trust like what do you what do you do in order to make um, or help um, leaders with with sometimes different interests or maybe maybe yeah. uh, intersecting interests really mm-hmm. actually trust the process that's bigger than what they are in charge of. It's, um, I believe that my, I, I'm in a very unique position in that I had already spent 32 years in, in education. And so I already knew, not only knew them as acquaintances or professionals, but I had these relationships professionally with about 85% of our CEOs. Uh, in, the, in the work that I did when I was at the university and then at the community college, for those 32 years, part of my responsibility, in particular the last 18 years at the community college level, was to build cross-sector partnerships, to build cross-sector authentic engagement, right? To to solve issues, you know, that, that the community college wanted to, um, you know, wanted to move forward along with its partners. So, for example, I helped design the first three early college high school partnerships in the Rio Grande Valley between South Texas College and its local uh, school districts. I worked collaboratively across sectors with our community-based organizations and the workforce boards to develop pathways and training programs for adults and, and opportunity use. And so it took, it took uh, the community about a year, 12 months, to identify the right executive director. And so when I was hired, I was hired in great part because I already had those relationships and they weren't just superficial, they were deep. And so I came into the work already with that trust and be known in the community as someone that could take a deep dive into an issue, mobilize folks into solving that. And then with very, um, you know, with very specific outcomes that could be seen, not just, in paper, but you could see an early college high school, you could see workforce training programs, you could see folks increasing um, their capacity to do this work through the collaboration that we were doing. And that's really critical in the leader of collective impact. We have seen communities that bring in folks that may not have that or are not in tune with what the community needs and or history or assets are. And it's really hard, and it takes longer for them to build that trust. So, how do you how do you measure success today? And what what are the the things that the the collective looks at over the last um, last two to three years as its wins? 
Yeah, and so for me, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I reflect a lot on this, and I think reflection is a critical aspect of leadership, and I don't know that, that, that folks take enough time to reflect, and this process requires a lot of reflection. And so for me, success looks, um, you know, is it, very concrete. It's are we able, are people deeply engaged, not just showing up to meetings, but present, authentically present, and engaged in dialogue, moving towards solutions. Um, success to me looks uh, where we have four institutions of higher ed investing their time and energy in building a super Saturday to increase FAFSA and TESA completion, which is financial aid, right, for, for students, regardless of what institution students go to. Opening their doors on a Saturday from 9 to 2, um, and providing all resources needed for families and students to be able to go to any one of their, even though it's only four institutions, seven campuses to complete the process to go to college, right? And so for me, it also is we just built, we have a huge uh, focus on equity. And so being able to support our dreamer population is really important because resources are very few. And so getting the four higher ed institutions to collaborate in changing systems and policies to create one application and one process to move from four to one so that families and, and uh, students can understand that financial aid process better and then collectively building a resource guide for college access professionals and a resource guide for families is, is success to me. So there's really tangible things that come out of that work and people are doing it through authentic engagement. And what, where do you think, where has the collective uh, failed and learned well over the last few years? Absolutely. So, you know, we, we have, in collective impact, I think we have coined this term, and I didn't coin it, somebody else did, failing forward, right? And so I think part of collective impact is being able to, to take huge risks. And we don't consider anything as just failure. What we consider it is failing forward, which means is that we have learned something from it, right? And so, for example, um, our College and Career Readiness Action Network um, took, a, took an attempt at trying to identify uh, how we can better serve uh, our students into getting them um, college ready earlier in the pipeline, right? And so we began to say, so what, how do we define college readiness? What about the tools that we use? Um, and it's interesting because we spent about 18 months taking a deep dive in this and we failed forward on this because at the end of the day, we can't make progress unless we have access to the data of the kids that are taking the assessment, um, of the interventions that are being put in place by the different institutions to do this. And the other reason we failed was that folks were, were not tracking and collecting data on this. So it was really hard for us to say, what are the right spots here? What are the best practices? So we took that learning and we regrouped, right? And so we said, okay, so instead of doing that, let's think about what the needs of the community are. Let's get the higher ed folks and the K-12 and community-based organizations in place and say, what's one need that's needed, right, to collectively be uh, built? And so in a span of seven months, in response to a mandate 
by the by the Texas legislature, our math and English faculty from both sectors uh, build a college readiness math and college uh, readiness um, English college prep courses that were to be implemented the senior year in all 39 of our school districts, created and designed by higher ed faculty in collaboration with K-12, but taught by K-12 faculty. And so that course has now been in place uh, for two and a half years. If seniors who are not college ready by their senior, by their end of their junior year are not college ready, they're able to take this course. And if they pass it successfully, the colleges and universities will waive uh, them needing to take an assessment. So they automatically go into college level courses. That's a huge win. And we wouldn't have been able to do that had we not struggled with understanding the barriers that were preventing kids from moving forward, which is, you know, those, those, those math and English classes, right? So what do you think that uh, that Rio Grande Valley, Valley focus um, can teach the rest of the country, particularly when it comes to engaging Latino students, Latino communities in the work of, of, of either ed reform, collective action, or, um, mm -hmm. or advancements toward equity? Sure. And so for, for us, I think is be unapologetic, right? Be unapologetic. Uh, of the of the student population and community that you're trying to move the needle on, uh, for that's why we even within a predominantly I mean we're 90 we our students are in K through 12 are 97 percent Latino, our kids in higher ed are 91 to 95 percent Latino, our community in general is 89 percent Latino, and so we're very unapologetic about saying that we're designing around around our Latino students and our systems. Our kids are not broken. Our systems are broken. So we have to redesign those things. The other thing is, I think, for us is that we don't do two and four. You know, one of the things that we do is we do with our community. Um, and that's very different, Jason, because we are very focused on authentic voice. We don't have our community partners at the table just so that they can create awareness. They, they are driving a lot of our work our equity work. And so when we have La Unión del Pueblo Intero, when we have Equal Voice Network, when we have our rights, all which are community-based partners that are deep in our communities uh, with our underserved populations come to us and they say, we have a real issue and we don't know that our higher ed and our K-12 partners clearly understand our issue. So as a collective impact table, it's our responsibility to create a space for authentic dialogue, right? And that we stop using words and terminology that are, that just go above and beyond, you know, the ability for folks to understand. And so as a collective impact backbone, we have to be unapologetic. We have to create uh, a space for authentic dialogue that's grounded um, in the needs of the community. And so for us, that happens to be our Latino students. And so we believe that other communities, um, right now, if you look at our outcomes, Jason, we are outperforming or at state level in seven of our nine outcomes. Mm -hmm. If you disaggregate the data to low-income uh, Latino students, we're outperforming in double digits in many of our outcomes, which says because 88.9% um, of our kids are economically disadvantaged, 
we're also creating models for low socioeconomics, you know, for, for kids in that space. Congratulations. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. And so when we look at that uh, and we challenge other communities to say, you know, you may look like Austin, Texas, we just did a comparative study uh, on math impact of, of, of kids taking algebra one in fifth grade and what that does in college persistence and college enrollment. And if you just look at big numbers, often it's a little ahead of us. But when you disaggregate by Latinos and and low-income kids, oh, my goodness, the numbers shift completely, right? And so the value is completely outperforming often in Texas when we do that. So what that says is that folks need to begin to look south for, for understanding how to better serve Latino students, and in particular, low-income uh, low students also, right? ELL, English language learners, and other, other subcategories of kids that, that we happen to serve. You know, I uh, I grew up in New York, and so I was when I by the time I was in my early twenties, I um, I started to learn about about the Southwest, about Texas, very very mm-hmm. different geographical, right? Different Latino population. You know, I grew up around a lot of Caribbeans. You know, everyone everyone in New York was Puerto Rican, Dominican, or, or there are a few <laughs> Cubans like me. Um, but I I was always interested in the, the idea that. In the Southwest, there were always Latino leaders. There were always Latino mayors um, and and local leadership, local councilmen. That that wasn't that wasn't such a a shock to the system. Does does that legacy of leadership in Texas in the Southwest translate to to better leadership for kids, students, and and schools in this way? Is that a part of the of of what I what sounds like a, a of a success story here? Absolutely. I'll give you an example. Myself and uh, the superintendent from uh, from Los Fresnos, the superintendent from Harlingen, the superintendent from from Roma, from Rio Grande. I, I can just go on and on. All of our superintendents, right? The majority of us are first gener. Our parents were first generation Americans, right? Coming in from Mexico, my dad came over as a bracero uh, to work in the fields. Married my mother, who whose family has been in America, you know, has been in the border and we trace back generations. And um, my mother's family became Americans when the Alamo was lost, right? So they've always been from this community. So when you have leaders like myself, right, that grew up as migrant farm workers, that made the trek up to Washington and Oregon, grew up in the 60s and 70s during the Civil Rights Movement, the United Farm Workers Movement, went through integration of schools, the busing movement and all of that, we were deeply impacted, right? That's our lived experience. And so as we then become part of the population of privilege, we, we believe, and I've spoken to many of my colleagues, that it is our moral and ethical obligation to pay it forward to, to those children that we are now trying to create a better life for. So it's really evident, for example, if you look at the vision statement for South Texas College, it is to create a better quality of life for the residents of Hidalgo and Stark County. That's that's like an, a, a very awesome responsibility, right? But it is meant and it is done because we know that if not us, then who? The Rio Grande Valley in the, in the early 80s had... Um, half of its, of its adults over the age of 25 without a high school diploma or GED. And half of those had less than a, than a ninth grade education. 
Um, and so when you fast forward, we are now down to 39% of that population not having a GED or high school. It's still very high, but when you look at our history, because we were an agricultural community that skipped the industrial age and went straight into where we are now, um, we've had a lot of catching up to do. And so we work really, really hard, and I do believe a lot of it comes because many of us see ourselves in the kids and in the families that we serve. And so when you have school districts that are being led by leaders that are part of that community, they have an awesome responsibility to serve because it's like their cousins, right? Their brothers, their sisters, their extended, it's almost like an extended family. And so, as you know, like the, the Mexican culture is very much about familia. And so we take all of the assets of our culture, and I think it translates into into a very different type of leadership that is that is morally obligated, you know, and that has this passion for for moving beyond themselves and doing just what's in the what's what's right for our community. And so I think that's that's not unique to us, but it is unique, you know. We and we like to say because, um, like you, I travel across the country and I look at other communities, and that's the first question I get. How do you get superintendents and presidents to collaborate out, you know, so that it's it's about the better the better good of the community and not just their own organization. And I do believe a lot of it is because many of us grew up in the communities that we serve. Hmm. It's interesting to say that you, you really sparked something for me here and that you know, the, as an alum of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, for a long time we talk about, like, is Latino leadership different, unique, are there different models? And I, I just I really appreciate the way you talk about um, this idea of the collective and familia and the culture and how that influences the way that we come to leadership. Um, I think that those those values could can benefit many many leaders in many many concept concepts. So maybe there's there's something to be learned there. Can I give you an example, Jason? Yeah, uh, please. You know, you know, in the Latino culture, as it is in many other cultures, I can speak to mine because I grew up in it, and it's my lived experience. You know, when you go to someone's home for the first for the first five to fifteen minutes, it's all about catching up, right? So what are you doing? Oh, Miko is already in college. Oh, mine just completed. It's all about highlighting the best, right, in, that has happened since the last time we saw you. So let me tell you how that translates to our agendas and the way that we lead our agendas. Um, the first 15 minutes of our leadership team meetings, we, so all of our meetings are hosted by someone on our leadership team, and all of our meetings are three and a half hours. Uh, the first 15 minutes are are given or provided to the host leader to highlight what they believe is the best practice that, that's, um, that, that will help them move the needle in one of the nine outcomes, right? And they provide data and all of that. Many of them bring in their, as a panel, many of them bring in a faculty member to showcase. Now that to me translates kind of like their familia, right? And so they're able to highlight that. Uh, what that does for us, it creates pride. It creates opportunities to learn from each other and things like that. The other very different way that our agendas are built is it takes us for a three-and-a-half-hour agenda. It takes us probably two weeks to be very thoughtful about what those three-and-a-half hours look like. Uh, so there's a lot of thought partnership that goes into building those. 
seldom will you come into one of our meetings and somebody's in the front presenting things, right? All of our meetings are about dialogue. So we are very thoughtful about protocols. We use like data walks, gallery walks. Uh, we use, um, you know, just different tools that will allow us to be able to engage people authentically. You know, we use collaborative learning kind of techniques where we do individual reflection, pair and share, report out to the big group. And we have found that, that by doing that, you create the space, one, for people to get to know each other. But the other is you create reflection and learning, which is really important. Uh, and so people are having to respond rather than react, right? And so that's, that's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a line, you know, that you draw there. And so when people are deeply in dialogue, um, you know, it, the solutions that they will come to is very different than if I'm the backbone staff, I'm out there saying we have a math issue, let's figure it out. Um, this is what we need to do. Instead, we just create the space and we'll have a data walk and we'll say, here are five outcomes right on the wall. What questions does this generate for you? And, you know, and what do you see in the data? And what should we do about it? You know, so that's very different than us telling. They still come up with the same solutions that we would have, I think. Uh, but it's very, they own the process. And at the end of the day, they leave knowing two things. We're helping build capacity by introducing tools that, that they may never have used. But more importantly, they go back and they, they, we, we know are going back to their own leadership teams and saying, we've got real issues and it's not just us. As a region, we need to deconstruct what this means for us and what our part in that is. And then, you know, at the regional level, we still do the action network group. And so what we're finding is that through collective impact, we're also building capacity for our leaders to do leadership in their own organizations differently by us modeling what meet, what, how meetings could look different and the kinds of outcomes that you get when you move into dialogue and active, uh, and active ways of solving problems rather than just someone standing up there, you know, trying to, to create awareness about an issue. Lucelma, if, if someone were come to come to you and say, I'm going to tra travel back in time 10 years ago and mm -hmm. I want to do what you've done, I want to establish RGV focus, what advice would you give to them? Oh, my goodness. I would say, um, I would say to them that it's really important to, to take the willing and able, right? And so many times we want to force collaboration. And to do this work, people need to be in it um, for the right reason. And so, you know, being very intentional about who you bring to the table is more important than having everyone at the table. And in many communities, um, I believe that you try and have everyone at the table and then it becomes about background noise, right? And you can't focus on what needs to be focused on. You know, uh, Dr. Daniel King, one of our superintendents from the San Juan Alamo School District often says, you know, bring the willing and able first, the rest will follow, right? Because you create the synergy and you, everybody wants to be part of success. And so I would say, you know, focus on something, bring the right partners to the table. It may not be all of the partners, but eventually the rest will come. Uh, because 
they will understand their role in that success. The other thing that I would recommend is find the right leader. It's better to take, uh, you know, more time in finding the right leader than to bring in someone and setting them up to fail. And so it's really important that, um, that the leader of Collective Impact, one, understands what Collective Impact is, but more importantly, understands the history and context and the community that they're working in, right? And so that's really important in order to be able to move this work forward. Mm -hmm. And what advice would you give to your 24-year-old self? (laughs) Uh, What would advice would I give to my 24-year-old self is the same advice that I give my 27, my 25, and my 23-year-old young adults uh, (laughs) is, you know, take your time. You know, every part of your career is building up to where you're going to be in, in 30 years. Um, don't be in such a rush. You know, I'm very blessed that I always at both the university and the community college level reported directly to the president, and they gave me so much autonomy and so much uh, trust to be able just to go in and take deep dives and understand systems really well. Um, you know, and I think the biggest thing that I would that I would say my 24-year-old self is don't be afraid to ask for what you want, right? And so it took me about 15, 20 years, as, as, as um, Cheryl Sandberg would say, to lean in. Mm-hmm. I would lean in for others, but not for myself. And mm-hmm. so because of it, I think it took me longer to get to the place where I am now. But that being said, I have no regrets. Because everything that I've done and the time it took me to get here prepared me for what I'm now doing. And so, you know, I always tell my children, no regrets in everything that you do. Because everything that you've done is preparing you for the next step in life as a leader, as a professional, just as a, as a good, civic, you know, engaged leader in the community. Even So, no regrets. <laughs> <laughs> And Lucena, just one one final question: um, Is there is there an an app, a practice, a uh, a thing that you use every single day to hold it all together and keep yourself organized that you just think the world should know about? Absolutely, um, I think that, and I think I started this at the beginning with this uh, reflection is really important, Jason, and I think. As individuals, as professionals, just personally, very few of us take time to reflect. I'm a very reflective person. And so the first 15 minutes of my day are spent on reflection. It's like, what am I going to do today? That includes me going to my calendar, me going through, you know, the, the last things that I remember that needed to get done. And it's just mentally preparing. I have about a 50 minute drive. I use that 50 minute drive either to do additional reflection and or listen to an audiobook on something that I'm struggling with. And right now, believe it or not, there's two audiobooks I just listened to in the last two months. One was, I have to be reminded, and so I went to Simon Sinek, starting with why, right? Like, so I needed to get back to, like, why are we doing what we're doing and what tools can I use to get our leaders to remember why we're doing what we're doing? And the second was uh, was uh, Kavi's book, The Seed of Trust, because trust is so critical in the work that we do. And so what I like about his book was that he just doesn't talk about the behaviors you need to build trust, but, but he also spoke about what, it, what the reverse of those behaviors are. 
So it's really important because I can use those to continue to reflect on how do I work with my leaders and how do I work with myself and with my team. The other tool that we use in my team and I use a lot is every Monday at 3 o'clock, we have our talk about it meeting where we just come and we talk about things. We track them, you know, on a, on a Google spreadsheet. Um, and here are the things, very high-level things that need to get done. Who's responsible? What kind of consulting do you need? What kind of support? Or who needs to be informed? And so we do a lot of reflection and a lot of dialogue because this kind of work can become very overwhelming. And so we need to be able to, as a team, uh, and as a leader, I need to be able to say to my team, um, here's what we need to be done, guys, but who do you need to consult with? Okay, that's very different to who do you need support from, right? And then who do you need to let know? And so um, those kind of things keep us sane. At the end of every day, my team and I look at our calendars because even though we're in one space, we serve a four-county community that is 4,316 square miles. So on a given day, we may be all together or not. And so it's just so that we understand where we are and why we're doing what we're doing. And so I give my team uh, almost like 95% autonomy. So it's really important for me to trust that they're doing what they're doing, but also to ensure that they have what they need to do their job. And so those are, you know, just a few tricks that I use to be able to keep my life sane. Uh, but I do believe that reflection is a critical part of success for leaders. And if you're not reflecting, um, that's why I think a lot of people end up with ulcers, heart attacks, <laughs> high blood pressure, because <laughs> uh, they don't take time to, at the end of the day, say, is it mission critical what I'm worrying about? Is, is anyone going to die as a result of it? Or is it just something I'm worried about, right? Mm. Is your reflection always... Um uh, internal, uh, or is it? Does it also live in a journal or, or some written form? You know, um, it does not live in a journal, and I keep myself every time because, you know, um, I, I I I was schooled myself in the school of business, right? And so, in the business world, we're all about tactical strategy, you know, things like that. And I almost wish that I had grown up journaly. Uh, although I do keep, I, for work purposes, all of my meetings go into one journal. And so I have journals going back 20 years, you know, from my meetings and things like that because I, am, I need to call on all three of my senses to learn. And so I listen, I speak, and I, and I have to write. And I'm also always designing things on paper. So now I've moved to journals with no line because I find myself you know, drawing ecosystems or drawing charts or infographics. And so, um, in a way, that's how I retain things and I can go back, you know, like months or years and say, oh, my God, I remember when we were doing this. Let me go back and find my journal, you know. So, not for reflection, but, yes, for everyday work. Excellent. Well, Lucelema, I really appreciate you spending time with us and sharing your insights on the leader's table we look forward to talking with you again, and I just want to want to um, want to send much, much good energy for the continued success of the Rio Grande Valley mm -hmm. Valley community and the work of your collective mm -hmm. leaders. Very good. Thank you for having me and for thinking of the Rio Grande Valley as 
as you're thinking about how to how to serve Latinos in a better way and really just how to tell the story of a great work that's being done in really important parts of the country. So I appreciate the opportunity to be part of this forum. Thank you very much, Osanma. Thank you. Hasta luego. Hasta luego. Bye-bye. Like this interview? Follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also visit www.educationalequity.org slash leaders table for more resources to grow your impact. Tweet us your questions for future interviews at Lee underscore national. Thanks so much. Your host at the leaders table is Jason Urenz. I am your producer, Molly Stevens. And thanks to John Stevens for our music and editing.